This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Sabini Anubuile. I'm Ben Brophy. Being introduced for the first time, producer, producer no longer just producer, <laughs> Ben Brophy, uh, now providing a third voice on our podcast, which we're super duper excited about. Indeed. Welcome, brother. Oh, so happy to be here. <laughs> All right. Well, and, and you've joined us on an auspicious day because we're finally getting to that issue that motivates a great, a lot of the discussion, I think, about Christians and politics, which is abortion. So, um, I just, I guess I just want to start by saying that, um, it's uh, a sensitive issue. It's an issue that raises a lot of feelings on kind of every side. Um, and one that we'll try to treat as, uh, kind of humanely and carefully as we possibly can. Uh, we'll see, we'll see how we do. (laughs) No, that's, that's the right note to strike. I, I think what I would say, pastorally speaking, is the conversation we're having here about politics and public policy, uh, is likely not to have the tone and the substance we would have if we're sitting down with someone uh, considering an abortion or someone who's had one and is now mm. struggling. Um, so there's a different pastoral conversation than the one we're having here where we're sort of trying to get our minds around the issue, politically speaking, and from a public policy perspective. Yep. All right. Well, so we're going to start, as we always do, by building the foundation of the issue. This is this is going to be a two-parter, by the way. Uh, so this first part is trying to really just understand the historic Christian position on abortion, a position that all three of us hold. I'm going to just try to kind of unpack why it is that we hold that. Mm. So, so leaving nothing to chance, let's start with definitions. All right. So... Uh, uh, so basic definition, this one's taken from Wikipedia again. Abortion is the ending of pregnancy due to removing an embryo or fetus before it can survive outside the uterus. Um, it's actually not a complete definition, right? Christians use a more pointed and clear definition. It is the deliberate killing of a child before she or he uh, is born. Uh, in the early stages of pregnancy, these days at least, um, this, is often done ke- uh, this is often done chemically uh, through, ju- through drugs that would cause a miscarriage. Uh, And in later stages, as a fetus develops, uh, it's more likely to be done surgically. Uh, The methods vary, uh, but the essence of it is intruding into the womb and killing the child and then finding some way to remove the child from the womb. Um, That's the long and short of what abortion is. The one thing about that definition that strikes me is it says the ending of the pregnancy due to removing an embryo or fetus before it can survive outside the uterus. But that is not not all of abortions because many abortions happen, I think, something like... 30,000 happen after that, after its viability. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it's it's funny. It's it's incomplete in that regard, too. Um, yeah, absolutely right. So so where does this come from? Uh, where does the demand for abortion come from? And, and demand, we might acknowledge, is an, it hits my ears a little bit funny anyway, um, mm. in terms of, from a Christian perspective, why why there would be a positive desire for, which is what the word demand suggests. So right. so unpack that. Where's, where does demand come from? Yeah. So as far as we can tell, and I'm not an expert on this, but I did do a little bit of reading, um, demand for abortion just goes, it goes way, way back, right? You kind of read histories and there's some kind of version um, of a debate or a discussion over the question of whether this is an okay thing to do um, sort of throughout histories and cultures. Uh, Now, the reasons uh, for and against it vary by cultural context. Um, but they boil down to this, going back to your question about demand, the BD. Uh, a woman or a couple, um, they're pregnant, and for whatever reason, they don't want to have the baby. Um, this can be because, uh, in some cases, the baby was conceived outside of marriage, and there's shame or stigma associated with that happening. Uh, shame or stigma that they want to avoid. 
Um, so it, uh, so there's a, uh, book that I read that was recommended to me by some others, uh, that was, a, uh, was Marvin Olasky's book, uh, Abortion Rights. It's a social history of abortion in America. And it's just, just in the American context, right? So he starts with colonial history and he just starts with, you know, in colonial times, if somebody was, uh, you know, if, if a woman was pregnant and she felt like she was in that position where there was going to be shame or stigma and she didn't have a way out, um, that the a crime that often the earliest sort of discussions of the crime of abortion were crimes of concealment, concealing a pregnancy, and then ending it, or in, in, in some cases, killing the baby after the baby was born. That was back then the safer, quote unquote, thing for a mother to do, right? And so, so sort of coming out of, um, coming out of that, this idea of shame or stigma that Colonial times is one context. You could imagine it in any number of other contexts for why um, an abortion would be would be demanded. And I guess so. That's one reason. Just there's a shame. I don't want people to know that we got pregnant, basically. And then the second thing would be um, whether people know is 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 neither here nor there. But but we don't want to raise we don't want to raise the child, or we don't think we can raise the child. Um, that that would probably be the other way. Um, so yeah, th- th- that's that's if I had to keep it simple, that would be where a so-called demand for abortion comes from. Well, it's interesting because it, it um, the subject, the issue, certainly it, it, if you dated the Roe v. Wade, you're starting well downstream. Yes. Understanding the history and the dynamics and some of the factors related to this. So that's helpful. So, so talk then about the posture of um, Christians, the posture of mm. society toward abortion across that history. Yeah, absolutely. So, as far it's always been controversial. I think because people are cognizant of this truth that is kind of difficult to avoid. That when you're pregnant, that's a life inside you, and um, you know what do you do if if you don't want to have the baby? What should you do about that? And is it okay to even do something about that? Basically, mm-hmm. right? So uh, the church has usually opposed it, and has usually called it what it is, which is the killing of the unborn. Um, uh, in America, throughout our own history, uh, the practice has existed. It's been throughout history supported by some, opposed by others. Um, Olasky has this um, uh, this part of the book that he talks about the mid nineteenth century and something called the Spiritist movement, which, as far as I can tell, is essentially like uh, like hippies in the sixties, but in the mid nineteenth century, and very similar kind of thoughts like free love and like having a child shouldn't get in the way of my willingness to just do what I want in the sort of sexual domain, right? So it's funny. We think these things are new, but they're not. Mm. Um, And um, in early days, uh, the movement against abortion relied more on social norms against it to try to reduce the number of abortions than on laws. And uh, uh, Ben, this isn't because... We had a discussion about this before. This isn't because they thought laws were ineffective. It was just because, in general, a lot of things were enforced by social norms rather than by laws. People just didn't turn to law as often. Whereas in the 21st century, of course, that's where we go. And it's probably appropriately where we go. Um, so, yeah. So, that's so now in the 20th century, that started to shift. And states and other governments started passing laws uh, banning abortion uh, or banning the support of abortion uh, in one way. So, that you, you, there are lots of versions of this. So, some of the earliest ones were laws against concealing a pregnancy. Laws against giving advice to somebody to have an abortion. Laws against actually, you know, performing one and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that brings us up to the 20th century. That brings us up to uh, sort of the current era. Um, Roe v. Wade, Supreme Court decision in 1973. How has the the conversation taken shape 
um, since that time? What's, yeah. What are the what are the sort of fault lines and and positions? Yeah. So let me let me say a little bit about what Roe v. Wade even is. Yeah. We talk about it; it looms large in our discussion about abortion, but it's actually not necessarily thoroughly understood as as a Supreme Court decision. So, the plaintiff in the case Roe v. Wade was a pregnant woman who challenged uh, a Texas anti-abortion law, one of many that existed at the time. And the court did two main things in that ruling. First, it held that pregnant women have a constitutional right to get an abortion. That right, in their view, was drawn from a right to privacy found in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, It also held at the same time, that there was a compelling state interest in regulating abortion or even prohibiting it, having to do both with the health of the mother and the potentiality of life. So they didn't hold, for example, that, you know, a fetus is not a person. They did not say that, Mm -hmm. right? They said, well, that's another interest to protect. Mm -hmm. And in attempting to balance these two factors, the court essentially decided and held that the government can't regulate or restrict abortion before the point of fetal viability. Um, it can regulate or restrict abortion after that point. Um, you know, so laws against so-called parth- partial birth abortion or just abortion in late stages exist in many states for precisely that reason. They are allowed under the Roe v. Wade framework. Um, that being said, Roe v. Wade essentially made abortion untouchable by law before that point of fetal viability. And it sparked a massive backlash among conservatives and Christians and anyone who called themselves pro-life. Um, One aspect of that backlash was constitutional. So going back to what I said about the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, you know, those of you who know your history will know the 14th Amendment was a Reconstruction era amendment (laughs) passed right after the Civil War, mostly intended to guarantee civil rights. It's hard to believe, right, that um, the folks drafting that amendment had this in mind when they wrote it. So that's kind of one criticism. Um, So the idea here then the criticism was the Supreme Court was basically inventing a new right to abortion and taking decision-making power away from elected legislatures to adjudicate the issue. Um, We won't go too deep into the constitutional side of things because there's a whole other episode we ought to do about constitutionalism in the Supreme Court. Um, The other backlash is more substantive. It's the one that matters to us. Um, It legalized this practice of killing the unborn with no legal recourse. In other words, I can't go now pass a law against abortion. No matter how big my majority, can't do it. Supreme Court has said it's unconstitutional, essentially. So there's seemingly no way to stop this from happening anymore. At least that was what things looked like in 1973. Um, yeah, go ahead, Quick, The one thing, the thing that's interesting about <clears throat> structuring the case on viability is that line keeps moving, right? So yes. viability now is somewhere around 20 weeks. In 1973, I assume it was somewhere mid to late third trimester. And so as technology improves... Roe v. Wade becomes more or less useful from a legal perspective or from a viability perspective because it won't be too long until babies that are eight weeks can live in an artificial womb outside of the outside sure. of a woman, and so that's where the case law from a legal perspective is really starting to break down. Um, and viability is just going to move up and up and up as technology improves. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <clears throat> so since then. In addition to that development, the country's just been deeply divided um, by movements that call themselves, on the one hand, pro-life movements, so that is pro-protecting the life of the unborn, and those who call themselves pro-choice, which is to say pro-protecting 
the right uh, right established by the Supreme Court, this right of a, uh, a woman to choose or decide whether to have an abortion. Um, the pro-life movement's work has really consisted of two things, which makes sense if you think about it. Uh, the first is getting that Roe v. Wade decision overturned. Until you do that, you can't regulate or restrict abortion, right? Um, and um, so that's really hard to do, obviously. It's hard to get the Supreme Court to overturn a prior law uh, that they've made. Um, and uh, But the main strategy, which you see being executed on sort of that side of the debate right now, is trying to get as many sort of conservative uh, judges onto the Supreme Court as possible. Um and, um, you know, the I, I conservative in this case means either they're pro-life in conviction um, or uh, that they come from a school of constitutional law that just believes Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, whether you agree with the issues or not. Uh, they, that school that says it's not rooted in what the Constitution actually says. Um, the second thing that the movement has done uh, is to pass laws at the state or federal level that restrict abortion as much as possible within the framework allowed by the Supreme Court. Um, and in some cases going beyond it. So there are several tri uh, there are several states that have what are called trigger laws, which basically state that as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned, you know, sort of abortion will be broadly banned, right? Like as per um, what that decision would allow. Um, so yeah, that's been sort of that. That's the state of play now, um, and that's kind of where we uh, where we where we come to this issue. We'll say a little bit more about the pro-choice side of the debate um, later in this episode and in the next, but. Um, I've hinted at it at this point, um, but I want us to just get really explicit. I've said Christians have been historically pro-life. They've been historically opposed to abortion. Uh, Thabiti, walk us through that. Um, why is it that most of us as believers have reached that conviction? What's the sort of biblical reasoning behind being pro-life? Well, I think there are at least two ways to uh, approach the, the sort of Christian perspective on this, generally speaking, because there you say most of us, there are, there are folks who regard themselves as Christians who would be pro-choice and um, believe the arguments in, in favor of that pro-choice position. Uh, so maybe the first thing to say is uh, there is an epistemological um, issue beneath the actual positions themselves, right? So if you think about how Roe is mm -hmm. argued, um, science figures heavily in that. Yeah. Um, and so epistemologically, you got a Supreme Court, not trained scientists, taking the science of their day, making a moral, I would argue, a law that, that shapes morality here. Um, mm -hmm. And as we just said, the science keeps moving, right? And so part of the Christian approach to this, even before we get to the Bible, is to say epistemologically, there's something called natural law that shapes our thinking about this, mm -hmm. right? That, that God has written uh, sort of moral understanding on the heart of all of humanity. Uh, and we can appeal to that commonly shared natural law, which in, in almost every instance tells us that life is valuable, that life mm -hmm. ought to be protected, that life is a good thing. Um, and we could make finer points even from moral law, but, but that's, the, that's the sort of beginning in a sort of broad Christian understanding of why we would support life. Mm -hmm. Then we come to the Bible, of course, and, and the Bible's arguments are, are explicit, and the Bible does for us what, what natural law often does vaguely, um, the Bible specifies. And the first thing that we learn right from the opening pages of Genesis is that God creates life. Mm -hmm. God's the author of life. Um, and um, both inherent in that notion and, and later made explicit in Scripture, therefore God's the only one who can take life legitimately, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we begin there in the opening uh, pages of Genesis, 
Uh, then, then, then we're told in Genesis 1, 26, 27, that human life is peculiar. Mm-hmm. That it's made in the image and likeness of God. That imago Dei creation means that every mm-hmm. life is infused with dignity. Uh, and every life has a purpose, mm-hmm. uh, namely to sort of fill the earth uh, with the glory of God. So you look at something like Malachi 2.15 where uh, Israel, God is chastising Israel for uh, its loose approaches to marriage. And, and he mm-hmm. says, I, I created marriage because I wanted a godly offspring. Mm-hmm. I wanted children bearing my image and likeness in the world. So the, we believe in a sanctity of life because both God has created it and uh, has created it uniquely in his, in his image and his likeness. Mm-hmm. That, that, that very fundamental theological view that, that life is created, human life is created imago Dei, that undergirds Christian ethics in, in everything from the death penalty uh, and, mm-hmm. and prohibition against murder to everyday common speech in James 3, 9, and 10. Uh, we, we ought not curse one another, for example, James says, uh, but rather bless each other because the person you're talking to is made in God's image and God's likeness. Um, but for our purposes, the fact that human life is made in the image and likeness of God is, is really the biblical basis for uh, forbidding murder uh, and forbidding uh, the killing of the unborn. Uh, we find that very early in Genesis 9, 5 and 6, uh, where we read mm-hmm. there, and for your lifeblood, this is God speaking to Noah and uh, his three sons and their wives following the flood, uh, and for your lifeblood I will require reckoning from every beast I will require it, mm-hmm. and from man, from his fellow man I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Right. So again, that, that imago de creation here is both the the basis for forbidding murder, mm-hmm. shedding innocent blood, and the basis for capital punishment. Mm-hmm. Right? Those who do that uh, are then liable to a death penalty. So the, the first thing we would understand as Christians is that it's God who creates human life, that life is made in the image of God. God is the only one that has the right to take life, as it were, mm-hmm. um, and and that you know having been made in the image of God, there's there's dignity and inherent mm-hmm. value there. The second thing we could say broadly from the scripture is we can make some comments about when life begins, or at least mm-hmm. how the scripture models for us how to think about the question of mm-hmm. when life begins. Uh, and specifically, you know, the the Bible repeatedly depicts God Himself as forming life in the womb. So we see that in a number of texts, Psalm 139, 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Um... So this poetic language mm-hmm. uh, of God being intimately involved in the creation of life in the womb and even beforehand knowing the number of days. Uh, or Jeremiah 1, 5, crying out, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says to Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Um, and then you, you find this language in the Bible of... Um, speaking repeatedly in the Psalms and, and in the historical books of this, this pairing of words, 
conceived and bore a child. So the way the Bible thinks about the beginning of life is it, it, it rhetorically joins together conception and birth and that entire period uh, as a period of, of life. And so when we ask the question, when does life begin? We answer it at the moment of conception uh, because that's, that's how the Bible speaks of it. Uh, and it's, it's making there a claim about God's actions in giving life um, and, and when we should consider that, that life a, a life indeed. Uh, rather than the sort of shifting line of, of science um, and, and the question, the pragmatic question of viability. Uh, morally, we would argue that life begins at conception. Yep. Then the third thing we see, I would say, biblically speaking, is that uh, there is Mosaic law that protects life in the womb. And so we think mm. of Exodus chapter um, 20, of course, verse 14, gives us the sixth commandment, you, you shall not murder. But then you come to the very next chapter, Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 22 to 25, and you get this instance where um, the law anticipates two men fighting and a pregnant woman being struck in the course of their fighting. Uh, and then the law specifies that if the child is lost, if she's made by that, that, that act being hit, uh, she's made to go into labor and to have the child and, and loses the child, uh, then there's, there's a civil penalty. Uh, mm-hmm. that the, the husband and the wife determine the penalty that the other person must pay mm-hmm. uh, in, in compensation for that loss of life, yeah. right? If the wife dies as a consequence of being struck, um, then, then there is the, there's a capital offense. The one who struck her and killed her is, is uh, mm-hmm. to, to suffer the death penalty. What that establishes in principle is, is the law recognizing the life in the womb. Uh, and assigning value to that life in the womb in the form here of, of, of penalty. Now, what it also establishes is what Christians have historically believed, ethically, is that the mother's life um, has kind of precedence in, in the case mm. of the pregnancy, right? And you see that in the different um, levels of penalty assigned. So when we come to questions of, say, uh, a pregnancy endangering the life of a mother, mm. well, Christian ethicists have mostly argued historically yeah. that it's right to act in a way that preserves the life of the mother um, in, in those cases. And so there, there's, you start to fan out into some nuance here. Uh, but the basic principle of recognizing life, of, of the law doing that, uh, of um, God being the only one who can legitimately take life, of life having dignity from conception to birth. Um, I think this is why it, that's so clear in the scripture, so univocal in the scripture, mm-hmm. is why most Bible-believing Christians uh, take, a, take a pro-life position. Yeah. So, Tabidi, that's a really helpful overview of, I think, uh, the biblical as evidence and wisdom around why we take that position. Um, ben, um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about, if you think about kind of the modern movement, uh, the modern pro-life movement, um, why is this such an important issue for us as Christians? Well, I think the sheer magnitude uh, of the issue of the numbers of abortions since Roe v. Wade, and if you want to go beyond the United States worldwide, are so staggering, uh, it numbs the mind. There's, a, there's almost a danger in talking about the numbers because it starts to remove right. the reality. Um, but quickly, in the United States alone... Uh, most recent data we have from the CDC, there was 650,000 abortions in the United States. And so in the last year, in the last year, yeah. this is data for, I believe, 2015. 
which is the last year we have data for. Um, Mm -hmm. And thanks, thanks be to God, that's actually down quite a bit since the mid nineties where abortions were about 1.3 million a year. And so you, you are legitimately talking about a, and I, you know, I know this word can be overused, but you're talking about a Holocaust, Holocaust of a particular group of people. So the unborn who are, you know, defenseless, can't speak for themselves. There is no other category of people that comes to my mind that is so voiceless uh, and Christians are called to be a voice for the voiceless. And so I think it really, it really resonates with me personally. And I think the movement as a whole, uh, because there is such an innocence here, there is such a, a weakness and we're called to care for the widows and the orphans. And, and what I see in principle there is caring for those who are weak and marginalized and oppressed uh, and so the unborn are among the weakest categories of people that we have. And so there, there does seem to be a very powerful biblical principle for Christians to, to the degree that they are able to protect and speak for these, these human beings that can't speak for themselves. Um, there, to me, you know, I also think that there is um, a question of systematic injustice here. Um, both from a minority perspective, um, so 33 to 35% of abortions are in the African-American community, and from an economic perspective. Uh, so by a pretty significant margin, uh, people who are poor have the majority of abortions. And so what you're seeing is a system where our tax dollars, you, me, all three of us in this room, pay for Planned Parenthood and one of the services that they do is abortion. Uh, so there's a system in America that is killing children. And, and you use language like that and people tune you out. But for a, from a Christian perspective, that's, that's what's happening. Uh, and that these centers uh, are being placed in urban areas, poor areas. Um, you know, the culture around this issue is such that... Uh, you know, the poor feel like they have no other option. And at the same time, there's been a real failure, both policy wise and and among the church to provide alternative options here. And so there's just a lot to that. But at the, at the end of the day, I think the sheer volume uh, is shocking. And so if you come up, if you come to the conclusion that the unborn are, are truly made in the image of God and human life worthy of protection and equal dignity, the numbers start to really shock. And I think that's why you see so much desperation from so many corners of, of the Christian church, but also the pro-life movement in general. Um, yeah. So yeah, that would be my short, short case. And I'll, I'll just add one or two things to that, Ben agree with everything you said. And I think, so this is just a point to note, right? Like the rhetoric can get hot because you know, just to, and just to give the comparative numbers, the Holocaust killed 6 million people. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why, it, it's 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 pretty easy for us to put this into that category because we're talking about many more than six million people over the last several decades and more than that over history. Um, and if you again, if all of those are you know have yeah. equal lives, and I, there is a distinction to be made there, and I, this might be nitpicking for or a distinction without a difference for many, but there's a difference. There is a difference between the government systematically killing a group of people and the government allowing allowing others yeah that's right um, that's a fair point so there is a distinction there and so so hang on the other analogy that is sometimes brought in is slavery mm-hmm. and i think 
the only thing I'll say about that, it looks like the video you want to get on this, the only thing I'll say about that is it is analogous in the sense it's the government allowing people to do this to people. And secondly, that it's sort of this thing that we all just sort of live with mm. and that we don't really, t it's like we live in this society and this is just a feature of the society. And you could imagine historians 300 years from now looking back and saying that society was insane, right? Because of what it permitted. As we look back on mm -hmm. society, the society that had slavery <laughs> sort of just integrate into his life, into, into its life. Yeah, and, and there's a disanalogy too, right? Because, mm -hmm. uh, at least numerically, because at the, if the best records we have uh, in, in, in what became the United States, um, we believe there to be a bit over 400,000 Africans brought to the United States mm -hmm. uh, in slavery. Uh, most of the enslaved uh, folks in Africa, the, the, the larger numbers come from the kind of forced reproduction in the system yeah. itself. Uh, but if you take that 400,000 number and compare it to, um, you know, the numbers of abortion, right. uh, again, in a year of significant decline, 600,000, you, you're, you're eclipsing that and you're multiplying that every, right. every year. Um, and so that is the, the sheer disanalogy in terms of absolute yeah. numbers. I'll just say one last thing about this to something you said, Ben. You mentioned just it feels abstract when you talk about large numbers. And just to bring it to the micro level, right? All three of us are parents. Ben, you and I are parents of young children. I can say just as this was an issue where I arrived at this conviction before becoming a parent. But once you are a parent, I think, I don't know about you guys, but I start to think about you know, we struggled with infertility in having our second child. When we had our second pregnancy, we were deathly afraid in terms of protecting um, the life that was growing that eventually came became our baby boy, whose first birthday we're actually celebrating oh, today. It's great to hear him upstairs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and to think about how afraid we were in that whole kind of time through the pregnancy. And then to imagine now a reversal of that where you're actually trying to do active harm to that life. Uh, to think that we permit that kind of decision making, um, and to, and to know right what those little people turn into as a parent of young children, uh, brings the issue home for me. Well, I, one of the things that then becomes apparent in the discourse, and and I'm sure we'll take this up in the in the next episode, um, is that there's a fair amount of suppression of conscience in the mm. conversation. Uh, for a lot of people who've had abortions, and certainly for those who are advocating abortion, um, and and the more radical parts of that advocacy, advocating it as a as a good, as a positive good, mm -hmm. um, that that this is the loss of life, that this is tragic, uh, is something that we cannot not know. Right. If Romans one is true, right. So there's a suppression of the conscience in order to justify these things and. And, and part of the cost of divorce uh, of, of abortion is, is is dealing with the conscience now dealing with the guilt dealing with um, the things that sort of flow out from that and this is where as Christians we, we can't just be political we really mm -hmm. even in our being political need to be redemptive mm -hmm. right and hopeful uh, and bring to bear the good news that there is forgiveness and the cleansing mm -hmm. of conscience uh, in the gospel itself so I think that's a really, really good place uh, to end this episode, Thabiti. We have um, basically kind of laid out the basics, what the issue is, and why, as a Christian, um, we think it is right and biblical to be pro-life and to be on this side of that issue. Mm. In the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the nuances around that, um, what it means, and maybe 
potentially some things or blind spots that this movement um, has as well. So, Thabiti, why don't you go ahead and close us in prayer? Father, we thank you for your gospel and your son, whom you gave, O Lord, as a ransom for our sins to purchase us back from certain wrath and judgment, uh, a deserved condemnation. And we praise you that through faith in Christ and repentance from sin, Lord, you, you cleanse the conscience, you make us clean, whole, righteous, justified through faith in Christ, not because of works we've done, but even despite them. So we praise you for this great redemption, and we pray that as Christians we would bear clear witness to the truth of your word, to the integrity and preciousness of life, and also to the hope uh, of eternal life and resurrection uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so make your church wise, make your people bold, make us gracious at the same time, and uh, cause, O oh Lord, your gospel to prevail. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Go high!